From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And this time, we are going to talk about the pace of language change. And no, that is not boring, because what I'm trying to do is answer a question that I get from a great many of you. And this is a typical thing. I get the question, and I kind of let it pass by, but I'm beginning to realize that, in a way, people like me have created a misimpression. I am always saying it is natural to language to change. It's always changing. It's not going to stop changing. We just have to accept it. And, you know, I get the feeling that a lot of you are accepting that message to an extent that linguists would not have expected the public to get it, say, 25 years ago. It's actually getting out there. You all are receptive to it. And what it means is that, in a way, we have created something of a monster because I'm finding that a great many of you and a great many people who aren't contacting me, but who I just happen to read or talk to, are thinking that the inevitability of language change means that English, this language I'm speaking now, in, say, 500 years is going to be a different language or close to a different language. And certainly, if we check up on this language that I'm speaking now in, say, 1500 years, then it's going to be something else because language always changes. And the truth is, that isn't true. And I need to finesse what me and other people have been trying to teach the general public about language and change. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So let's start with the basics and then try to get a sense of why we have to nuance the basic idea that language change is like cloud patterns changing. If the cloud patterns don't change, then something seriously wrong. That's also true of language change. But does that mean that English is going to be a completely different language in a thousand years? And if it doesn't, and it doesn't, then why not? Okay, well, let's start with the basics. The basics are that language changes all the time. And now that we have a longish, depending on whether you call 5,500 years long, a longish history of writing, we can see it very clearly. And so, for example, August, the month, Latin, Augustus, okay. French, U, that's all it is. Latin, Augustus, French, U, Standard French, that's the Parisian French that some people are under the impression, which is mistaken, that it's somehow the best French. So there is language change in action. You say Augustus, but, you know, sounds tend to fall off of the ends of words. Sounds tend to fall off the beginnings of words. You've got consonants in the middle. They're going to soften and then kind of go away, kind of like if you put toilet tissue in the toilet and then it dissolves. I'm sorry to use that analogy, but it's what came to me. And so next thing you know, an Augustus becomes just ooh. All that's left is that middle ooh. The aug is gone, the stus is gone, and just ooh. And you know that this was a gradual process. It's not that all of a sudden one day somebody decided I'm French and so I'm just going to say ooh. It's that there was Latin and Latin gradually evolved into French. And in Old French, 
which was written down. You can see that where they were was A-O-U-S-T. And so, oust. There you go. So, Augustus, say that enough times over a long, long period, century after century goes by. Augustus, you don't want to say that. I don't want to say it now. You're going to start saying something like, oust, okay, right. But after a while, oust just becomes ooh, at least in some places. Because even today, in Quebec and in Cajun French, which is just French, it's Canadian French that was taken down to Louisiana, you can get ooh instead of just Ooh. So Augustus goes to au. So everything's fallen away except the a and the oo. But in standard Parisian, just oo. So there's beautiful language change. A lot of it has to do with things falling off. As I described in another show, things get added. Words come together. We'll see a little of that at the end of this show. But a lot of it is this kind of erosion. Or this is my favorite example ever. It comes from the Algonquian language family. These are Native American languages. I talked about them back in May. These are many of the Native American languages that we hear of in passing. So Pocahontas's Powhatan, for example, or Cree, which is one of the few truly healthy and unthreatened Native American languages now. Ojibwe, too. Ojibwe, Chippewa. Ojibwe, Chippewa. Chippewa. Those are related. Where Chippewa is a kind of Ojibwe. Ojibwe up there too in the Canada area and then somewhat down into the United States. Potawatomi, Arapaho, Narragansett, Blackfoot, Cheyenne, Kickapoo. You notice I'm sitting here just enjoying <laughs> saying the names of these languages. Algonquian has a lot of cool language names. But let's talk about Cheyenne and let's talk about Proto-Algonquian. What that means is that there are specialists in just the Algonquian languages. They are spoken. It's an interesting range, actually. You've got some that are in kind of a splotch in the Midwest. Then you've got those Canadian ones up there sitting kind of like a hat on the United States, if you think of everything as starting from the United States, which I'm sorry, but I kind of do deep down. I know that's wrong. And then you have a bunch of them that kind of go down the eastern coast of the United States. It's a big, giant splotch. And enough people specialize in all these languages that just like there's this reconstructed language of Ukraine that became all of the Indo-European languages, Proto-Algonquian has been reconstructed pretty, pretty well. And so there are people who can tell you what, for example, the Proto-Algonquian word, when there was only one Algonquian language that had yet to spread throughout so much of Canada and the United States, the word for winter would have been Peponwi. And that can be reconstructed pretty firmly. Peponwi would have been the Proto-Algonquian word for winter. But then in Cheyenne, which is one of the Algonquian languages, in Cheyenne, the word for winter is ha. So Proto-Algonquian has Peponwi. Cheyenne has ha. Now you think, well, that it must be that somebody made up some new word for winter or you know, Cheyenne got the word for winter from some other group of Native American languages. But no, Peponwi became ah, because language is always changing. How would that happen? It's real, it's just you have to take it step by step by step. So Peponwi, that's winter, about three thousand years ago, when there's only one Algonquian language and the spread of them today doesn't exist yet. Well, you know, things tend to drop off the end. And so Peponwi, after a while, that's going to be just Pepon. You, you just know that that's the way it's going to be. And there are Algonquian languages today where the word for winter is roughly 
that. Pepon wheat starts there, then pepon. Okay. But then, you know, pepon. The P's maybe are going to soften to B's because P and B are the same thing, but B is softer. And so pepon, pepon. Now then think about Spanish and, you know, what we're told are B's, but they're kind of like V's. It's going to be something like pepon, something like that. Well, pretty soon you're just going to drop that. So pepon. How about aon? So pepon becomes just aon. The P's get dropped. H's aren't the only things that get dropped. So Hereford, Hartford, and Hampshire, whatever that My Fair Lady line is. So Hereford, Hartford, that's not only H's. You can drop other sounds. P's can go. Remember, I showed you in one show that in Iroquoian Native American languages, a whole different group, there are no P's, nothing made with the lips. You don't have to have sounds made with the lips. And so, no P's. So Pepon becomes Aeon. Not in all Algonquian languages, but that's what happened in some of them. So, Aeon. And after a while, Aeon becomes Ain. And you kind of think, why? Why does Aeon become Ain? Well, let's just take the A and the A. A can become A. So, think of someone today saying bed. And you listen to them really closely, more closely than you need to socially, but you just listen to them. Bed, bed. You know there are some people who talk that way, probably under 40. Bed, bed. Okay. Now, a Martian listening to that person say bad, let's go to bed, might hear them saying let's go to bud, because they kind of are saying bud. It's because eh, uh, there's a short distance. Let's go to bed. Let's go to bed. Let's go to bud. Okay. Well, if you're going to go to bud, let's go to bud. Let's go to bud. A little bit of honest in there. Well, then suppose it becomes an ah. Uh. So let's go to bud. So bed, bud, bud, bad, bud. That is how you get from e to a. So eon, ain. I'm going to leave out the part about the e, but you get the point. So ain. Well, what's at the end of ain? The n. Well, that's now ripe for elision. And so ain, ai, that was the next step. Now, it could be that, you know, the ai gets longer. Ai, that might happen. Or something like ai, you might say ai, and that's what happened. Then instead of ai, you might say ai. These things happen just step by step, little differences that nobody thinks about at the time, but next thing you know, nobody remembers when it wasn't that way. So, ai, uh-oh, but the ends are fragile. Ah, and I swear to you, that's how you get from peponwi to ha. And that happened in either 2,500 or my guess is probably 3,000 years. But that is the basics of language change. That is what we linguists try to get across. And so you can go from peponwi to ha in 3,000 years. And so you start wondering, well, what is English going to be like in 3,000 years? And remember, that would happen in a cave. I'm not talking about what happens because of cultural exchange, because of people inventing things like bassoons and Viagra and psychoanalysis. I mean just that language changes bit by bit because we're always mishearing a little bit. We're always randomly creating slightly new ways of saying things just because life is dull. And next thing you know, you have changes like peponwi to a or Augustus to ooh. That's just the way it goes. Well, you know, it is time for a song clip. And you know, this is, you know, we're getting to the end of the year. I want to get a little silly. I have played this before, I'm almost sure. And I know that I'm very flattered that a lot of you have listened to every show, but you know, most of you haven't. And I want to do a Culture Club song because I'm just in the mood. This is Church of the Poison Mind back in 1983. You could not get away from this. And I liked it. It is a great little song. Culture Club sucked live. They couldn't really 
play, but boy, were they great in the studio. And you know, this one I like so much. It's not just because of Helen Terry and that marvelous vocal that floats over it. It's also because we're talking about me and Mike doing another podcast at some point. And a lot of you music people have written to me when I've dropped in these little music insights. Well, I'm just going to drop this in. The good thing about Church of the Poison Mind is that it relies on the, here you go, the Mixolydian mode. Music people, you know what I mean. Just listen to this. And so, Church of the Poison Mind, it is a joy forever. inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's where we need to nuance. So, for example, I talk about those magic changes, and English seems to offer some of the same thing, in that there's Old English, Middle English, and Modern English. And Old English is utterly foreign to us. Old English looks like some sort of weird German to any English speaker. Then Middle English looks just weird, but it seems like English. And then there's Modern English, but especially from Old to Modern English, it seems like some Peponwi stuff happened. And so, for example, let's take the Lord's Prayer, because it's always easy to find direct comparisons. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay. So, Old English, with the Old English voice, Fadurura. So, that's our Father, you that are in heaven. Be your name hallowed. Hallowed be your name. So, be your name. That really is how they talked. Be your name honored. Now, whatever that is. That is not effing English. We don't know what that is. And then it goes on. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Tobacuma, thin rica, the vurtha, 
in will. It's utterly opaque. But then you get to Middle English. So this Old English, you know, call it roughly 800 AD. Then you've got Middle English, 1300, whatever. And you've got Our Father, which art in heaven. Um, What's the Middle English voice? You know, I'm going to use cartoon (laughs) Swedish from the 30s because it always seems like the Canterbury Tales have that lilt, although who knows whether they talk that way. So that's the Middle English voice. So, Our Father, who art in heaven. Middle English, It's not English, but it's English, our Father, who art in heaven. So, And then, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. So, it's different. You wouldn't want to have a conversation with this person, but still, it's English. Well, what happened in between Old English and Middle English that with Middle English, somebody sounds to us crazy? Like, you wouldn't want to hang out with them, but you can kind of get it. In Old English, where it might as well be Burmese. Well, it's supposed to be that language changes really quickly. And so, Old English went to Middle English and created this whole new language in apparently just a few hundred years. Now, you know, that's weird. Now, you might just accept that, because you're thinking that language changes like Peponwi. But the problem is that Middle English and Modern English are so much more similar. Why is it that we can kind of understand Middle English, and then you've got Shakespeare, and he's straddling 1600, and that's going to be 500 years ago pretty soon, yet we can understand Shakespeare. We don't understand as much of him as we think, but still, it's clearly the language that we speak. So clearly, something's a little wrong there if we're just talking about August and Peponwi. And, you know, actually, there is a book. It's called The Secret History of the English Language. It's written by one Michael Harper. And they are completely wrong. Completely funny. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read because he's got that kind of British sort of raffish, take-no-prisoners wit. But what he's basically saying is that there's no way that Old English became Middle English in some short period of time. He finds that implausible, and it actually makes a certain sense. And he's got this idea that, you know, Old English and Middle English were completely different languages. It's all utterly ridiculous and utterly hilarious. I recommend the book. I sat, you know, literally my sides were splitting at how kind of Brit funny he is. But he is asking a question. And the truth is that the reason Middle English is so different from Old English is not because of Paponwi happening within that tiny period of time, but because of contact between English and other languages. So, for example, the difference between Old English and Middle English is because Vikings, Scandinavian Vikings, had come over, and they spoke Old Norse, not Old English, and Old Norse and Old English were different languages, similar, but they were different languages, and they're these Vikings, and they marry English women, and they screw up English, and because there's no media and there's really no such thing as school, kids grew up hearing faulty Old English, and next thing you knew, you had Old English the way we would speak it if we had to learn it now. And so, for example, something like, Our Father who art in heaven. Well, in Old English, that's on heavenum. Heavenum. As soon as we hear the num, we're lost, just right there. Whereas by Middle English, it's in heavens. 
in heaven. So in the heavens, a little poetic, but we get it. What's this noom? Well, it's the Vikings who got rid of the case endings of those kinds because they had them, but theirs were different. So you're just going to leave that off and kind of generalize the good old plural S. And so just in heavens, it was contact that meant that Middle English was so different from Old English. It's not that the language in a few hundred years started doing Peponwi to that extent. Or, even with Middle English, a lot of why we find it so hard is because there was more contact. It's not just that the language was changing willy-nilly and next thing you knew you had U instead of Augustus. It's because of contact with particularly French and Latin. So, for example, early Middle English. Around the first time we see Middle English, there's a document called Ankrena Wissa. And Ankrena Wissa, you think Ankrena must mean ancient, but no. Ankrena is anchoresses, roughly kind of nuns, people who are cloistered and religious. So Ankrena Wissa means anchoresses knowledge. Wissa, wit, mother wit, get it? So anchoresses knowledge, rules for the anchoress. And when you read the Ankrena Wissa, what's interesting is that it's still English English, And the reason that we have such a hard time getting it is because French and Latin replaced so many of the words. So it's not just the Peponwi process, it's that there was contact. And so, for example, at one point, they say in Ankrenawissa, let's keep the the Ole Olsen Scandinavian accent, and so it's Thou's rule is charity of sheer harta and kleine in wit and trauda believe. Okay, what the hell does that mean? It means this rule is the charity of a pure heart and a clear conscience and true faith. Isn't that pretty? But the thing is, we can't get it because the words that we use to express something like that are French or Latin. So, thou's rule is charity. So, this rule is the charity. Okay. Of sheer heart. Sheer, what? No, we say a pure heart. Pure is from French. And kleine inwit. Okay, inwit. Inwit is conscience. It's like your inner knowledge. I love the word inwit. Can we please just keep using inwit? And so, kleine inwit. They use clean, and we say clear now. You have a clear conscience. You could say a clean conscience, but you don't. You say clear conscience. Clear and conscience are both not English words. Okay, and true belief. Belief, that's a good English word. Faith is, though, what we use. And faith is one of these French words. And so, we read Ankara today, and I'm, I'm sure that we all do before we go to bed, and we can't read it. And it's not just because the language was different, but it's because of contact. So the question is, what would English be like after a thousand years? Let's say that Old English ends roughly a thousand years ago. What would English be like if there wasn't the contact? And the truth is, it wouldn't be as different as Old English and Modern English are. And we can know because of Icelandic. English and Icelandic are both Germanic languages, and Germanic is a relatively small family. And Icelandic is spoken, well, I think you probably know, and it's an island, and so it's relatively isolated, and so it's been allowed to mind its own business. There hasn't been much contact with other languages in a very long time. And the thing is that Icelanders can read Icelandic written from about 900 AD through 1300 AD. I I hear I'm supposed to say CE these days, so pretend I said it. They can read it. 
Kind of, you know, it, it takes some effort, you know, there's a whole Shakespeare aspect to it, but they can read it. Icelandic is much, much, much less different from its earlier versions, which we call Old Norse, than modern English is from Old English. And that's because Icelandic has had very little contact. So, pepon we, yeah. But if we're thinking, well, is English in 500 years going to be completely different because, say, Chaucer could not have spoken to the people who wrote Beowulf? No, because really English is weirdly different from its ancestor because of added things, and that is contact in particular. I'm in a police mood this week, and I'm not sure why. I really loved the police. No, not Sting. He's great, but I mean the police. And the first time I realized I loved the police was when do 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 da 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 was a hit on something called the radio. That was the first one of theirs I heard. And I remember thinking, I was this pimply, cello-playing loser, and I remember thinking, that is a good song. And what I liked about it was that the guitar keeps hitting in, before the chorus, the second instead of the tonic. So the ding, 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 it's the second and you're waiting for it to resolve to the tonic. So it makes it sound like whatever they're saying is kind of urgent because there's a shoe that hasn't fallen. I remember thinking back then, that is a quality piece of work. And I couldn't have told you why at the time. But the reason to do-do-do is not boring is because of that ding, 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 ding. So let's just have a little bit of da do 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 da 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 I love it. It reminds me of playing the cello in 1981. to realize this is a major aspect of finessing what we could call the Paponwe thing is that once there's widespread literacy language change slows down and what i mean by that is for example a question that we might have shouldn't icelandic be more like cheyenne shouldn't there be more Paponwe? You know, icelandic has existed for a very long time up on that island why is it that modern Icelanders can still read the sagas with a certain amount of effort. Wouldn't you expect more change, even if we're talking about a 1,000 versus 2,500 or 3,000 years? Wouldn't you expect more? There are two answers to it. One of them, briefly, is that some languages, for no reason that I think anybody 
could actually chart, change faster than others. Some languages are just more in a hurry because of a certain, let me BS a little bit, a certain intersection of various phonological and phonotactic factors. So some languages just go faster. And so, for example, this Creole language of Suriname that I'm always talking about. It almost seems like I'm advertising it because I want you to purchase some product, but it's really just that I wrote a grammatical description of it with another linguist, Jeff Good. And so I think of it often, and it's spoken by descendants of slaves who escaped plantations in Suriname. There are various Creole languages spoken in Suriname as the result of plantation slavery there. And we can know that the first word for brother in these Creoles, because they're based on English, brother was barada. So you listen to somebody saying brother, you speak an African language where probably the structure is kind of like Japanese, where you have consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. So brother, you're going to unravel that into barada. Okay. In Sranan, which I've played on this show. This is the metropolitan lingua franca of all Suriname, vernacular language, a creole. Barada has become brada. It's shortened brada. So there you go. In Saramakan, though, instead of just leaving out that first ah so that you have brada, Saramakan, the word for brother from that same original word barada is ba, ba. It's three ahs in a row. No r, that's gone, and the d is gone too. So brada. And then Bra, and then ba. So that's what it is. Saramakan in general has changed more from that original proto-creole than Sranan has, and nobody could tell you why. Or, for example, French. You know, Augustus becomes U, but in Italian, Augusta. Italian holds back. French moves ahead. No one has ever quite explained why French is weird in that way. So some languages are just more in a hurry to become different. But mainly, the thing is... Once there's not only a written version of the language, but also a critical mass of people are literate, then next thing you know, you have brains on writing. And to be a brain on writing is a funny thing, despite the fact that if you're listening to this, you are somebody whose brain is on writing. It's just like this is your brain on drugs and they have the fried egg in in the commercial. Your brain on writing is a really interesting and in some ways sad thing because it means that you think that language is that thing that's on the page and that any departure from the page is somehow a mistake. So once widespread literacy sets in, despite the massive benefits that that affords to a population, it means, and maybe we don't care, that the language isn't going to change as fast because there's always that written model kind of peeking over your shoulder. This explains something like not only that Icelandic hasn't changed as much as it would have if there were no writing, part of the reason Icelandic stays the way it is is because it's a highly literate society, has been for a good while, and the sagas, in a way, are staring over everybody's shoulder. That's what the language supposedly, quote-unquote, is. And so you're not going to have Peponwi because these Algonquian languages, for the most part, have been unwritten. And so they get to do what language naturally does. So an example of this is um, Capicola, that delicious cured pork that comes from Italy. You write it down, Capicola, in America at least. So Capicola, okay. But then if you watch The Sopranos, you notice that they call it Gabagool. Gabagool. And it kind of got around. Well, why do they call it 
Gabagool. And there were some interesting media articles that kind of wrote around it, but it's very simple. Gabagool is what Capicola wants to do. You take Capicola, and that's like you see a praying mantis, and you catch it, and you let it die, and you put a pin through it, and you put it in the box, and there it is, and you label it. But that is not the dynamic nature of the praying mantis on the pin. Capicola, well, people are saying that at a certain point in the Italian dialects that happen to make it onto the page as the standard. So, oh, well, this is Capicola. But Capicola just wants to be Gabagool. K becomes G, naturally. So Capicola, Gabicola. P wants to be a B. These are the softer versions. Gabagool. Capicola. What's at the end? You know it's going to go away. Pretty soon, Capicola becomes Gabagool. That's normal. Talk to many Italian-Americans, and they'll very spontaneously tell you that what we call ricotta cheese is rigot, of course. Or, oh, I love manicotti. No, managot. That's where the word goes in real life. So literacy preserves Capicola, but real life makes Gabagool. So the question is, why wouldn't a word go where it wants to go? That's why, in English, 1000 A.D. to, say, 1400 A.D., you have this complete turnover. You have Old English become a completely different language. But then we can still sit through a Shakespeare play, hopefully having read it beforehand, but it is recognizable as the language that we speak. And that's because, after Shakespeare, literacy became widespread. And the page holds back major transformation. That means that foreigners, people who are speaking the language as a second language, they don't affect the language as much as they used to. It's not what would happen with Vikings. It's not what would happen with the Norman French spewing all of these words into our language. That can't happen once there's the printed page looking over our shoulders and making us into people whose brains are on writing. Because however your dad talks, However your mom talks, whatever version of the language they've created, if you grow up as a native speaker, well, you listen to them and you're used to the way they talk, but you're listening to the native speakers and you've got writing, you've got media. All of that affects the way you render the language, which is going to be more or less the way everybody who is what you might call an indigenous speaker is going to render the language. So language always changes. And language changes partly just by itself, but partly also because of contact. But once there's widespread literacy, change gets majorly retarded. It's majorly held back. And that's true by default of most of the languages that most of us are going to know a lot about. Now, to see, however, that change always happens, it's important to realize that writing is not usually our best guide to how much change has happened, because writing systems are consistently, ridiculously conservative. It's absolutely amazing how these things go. So, for example, even French with the OU, I'm saying that August is OU in French, but it's spelled A-O-U-T, as if people were still saying out, which is a lot closer to Augustus. That's because French's spelling system is almost as sucky as the English spelling system, where, for example, I'm going to whistle a happy tune. No, I'm not going to play that song, but notice that you have whistle 
So people say, well, I prefer to say often because the T's in there, but none of them would say whistle or thistle or listen to me, sweetie. What's he doing in there? It's just because writing is ridiculously conservative or just something like made. You know, I, I, I made a hat. Look, I made a hat. Okay. Made. M-A-D-E. Made. Think about how weird that is. That's as odd as the fact that you have a tongue in your mouth. We don't think about it, but if I tell you, you know, you have a this meat, it's sitting in your mouth, and it's, it's you're thinking, you don't, well, made is the same thing. Made, and we just know that that's read as made. Writing systems are just stupid, spelled S-T-O-O-P-I-D. My favorite example, and I don't mean to insult the Burmese, but is Burmese, because the writing system preserves in amber this stage of the language from way back. So just like one, two, three. One in writing, the way you write one in Burmese is tak. The way you say one is t. <laughs> the way you write two in Burmese is nak. The way you say two is nit. So imagine you're bouncing on your mommy's knee somewhere in Yangon. And you learn that one, two is tit, nit, which is kind of fun. But then when you learn to write, you have to write talk, knock. Tragic, tragic. Or the word for three in writing is sum. Good. That's a nice little word. But you know how they actually say it? Thong. Thong. And that's because the sir became a th and the oo became an oh. These things happen, but you don't write thought, you write sum. That's because writing systems are just insane. It's as if the world is just running down, like the police. And I have a question about this song. He talks about his VCR and how it's the same one he's had for years. This is what I've never understood. This song is 1980, probably written and recorded in 1979. Zanyara Mandata is at that time. How did he have a VCR for years then, when, at least in my orbit, VCRs were not common until around 1980? You got a new VCR if you were a snotty rich kid, in my experience, which I wasn't, in about 1980, and then it's about 82 or 83 that other people have them. He's saying, turn on my VCR, same one I've had for years. Why did he have it for so long? But it's also a wonderful song. is an alternate universe version of this episode where you wouldn't have to listen to any ads and you would even get more show. 
you'd get a tag at the end where I just share some random stuff. You know, sometimes it's connected to the episode, but frankly, as often as not, it's just whatever happened to flutter through my mind that week while I was making up the show. But you get more stuff, often with more clips and not always with musical theater. What you have to do is get what we call Slate Plus, and for a nominal fee, you can have this extraness, and not just with my show, but with all of Slate's lovely podcasts. And the way you get to it is to go to slate.com slash lexicon plus. It's that little club that only you and several tens of thousands of other people belong to, very exclusive, called slate.com slash lexicon plus. And you know, honestly, it does help us out at this point, because you know what has made it hard for all media organs and slate is in no way immune to that. Quite frankly, we we need your money. And so, Slate Plus, for a nominal fee, for a little bit more money, you really do get a great service. I can honestly say that if I were standing on the outside of this, if I were listening to Lexicon Valley hosted by Jim McWhorton and that person weren't me, I would sign up for Slate Plus in order to have more show, not only for Lexicon Valley, which of course I would love, but all of Slate's other podcasts, most of which are better than mine. And so, for example, if you want to know why people on the steps in Ukraine 8,000 years ago would have understood how easy it can be to get angry at a guest, you have to get Slate Plus. Otherwise, you won't know, and those people in that exclusive club will. Now, I want us also to pull the camera back, because I'm telling you that language change is all about this business of sounds eroding, etc. And that stuff is fun, but there's more than that. And so language is changing, and it's always happening. It tends to be held back by print. But nevertheless, it is always happening. And even if you can't always have the experience of watching, you know, Copicola become Gabagool, there are things that you can see on the page, for example, and things that you can feel in life. And so, for example, we have to think about changes in the meanings of words. That's as important as Capicola to Gabagool. We know that Shakespeare wrote in English, but as I have mentioned on this show several times, one of my first ones was with Jack Lynch, where we talked about how language has changed so much since Shakespeare's time that there might be an argument for at least certain massagings of the text to make them easier to process in real time for us. When Shakespeare says generous, he means noble. He doesn't mean magnanimous. And so there's been a meaning change since then. Or not just Shakespeare, but Jane Austen. There are all sorts of little places in Jane Austen, as easy a read as she is for us, because it hasn't been that long, where she doesn't mean what we think she means. And so, for example, Pride and Prejudice... That does not mean to us what it meant to her. Pride, we think, well, you know, I have a nice trellis or something, or you know, that's what they would be proud of because they didn't have penicillin yet. So they have a trellis. I'm proud of my trellis. But no, pride meant proudness to them. It was the negative pride. So proudness. Prejudice certainly had nothing to do with race, and it wasn't as inherently contemptuous in meaning for Jane Austen. What she meant by prejudice was roughly jumping to conclusions that you think something now that you end up being contradicted about later. Not just that you look down your nose at at something, but prejudice meant you thought that, but then you learned later that it was that. 
So, for example, the estimation of Darcy in that book. So, Pride and Prejudice was more like proudity and hastiness. That's what she meant. We can't help thinking what we think now, but that is natural to language as well, or today. So, for example, today, when we'll say, oh, that's awesome. Oh, you can come at five? That's awesome. Nobody would have said that even in, say, 1970. Awesome meant a cathedral. But then, some centuries before that, you could refer to the cathedral as all full. And all full meant what awesome means to us now. It hadn't become negative yet. You know, why not? And so, you're prideful, you're wonderful, and that cathedral is awful. That's what you may have thought. But even today, the idea of awesome referring to that you put bacon bits in your scrambled eggs. I did that the other day. I highly recommend it. Tarragon in your mashed potatoes, bacon bits in your scrambled eggs. Then you don't have to eat bacon itself and kill yourself. You just have the bits. It was awesome, but I would never have put it that way. I'll bet James Beard never talked about some food being awesome. And that's because meanings change. So meaning changes. Then also something else accent changes. And we linguists call it stress. I'm talking about if I say aquamarine, the primary stress is on that last syllable, aquamarine. Now, I know that in real life, people call that accent, so I'll switch between the two. But those changes of stress, those changes of accent, have a lot to do with language change, and they can even make something seem like a whole different language. I don't talk much about sounds on this show because my sense is that sounds don't lend themselves as much to sharing with the public. And I'm also not a phonologist. I don't care as much about sounds as I care about words and grammar. But these things do need to be attended to. So, for example, there are two languages that are spoken in China. And, well, one of them, Evenki is spoken in China and Russia, and Araken is spoken in China. They are languages related to Manchu. And then again, you know, it's not common to know that Manchu is part of a group of languages called the Tungusic languages. In any case, they're over there. And there's Evenki and there's Araken. If you look at Evenki and Araken on the page, they look like variations on the same thing. They look more similar than Spanish and Portuguese. But if you talk to Evenkis and Arakens, they'll tell you that they don't understand each other. And you can play recordings of the two languages to the speakers of the other. It's like, what? What? And a lot of the reason is just because they stress, they accent different syllables. So the word for fish in Evenki is roughly olo. In Araken, the word for fish is olo. Well, that can be a little confusing, especially if it's every second word. It really does make it hard for people to understand each other. And so, for example, you could listen to cultivated people speaking English in the late 1800s, and based on the evidence of guides to proper speech for, you know, basically affluent or middle-class and self-conscious white Americans living east of the Mississippi in the late 1800s, you know that somebody could have said back then, and this is a cooked sentence, but still, somebody could have said, I was trying to enjoy this exquisite melodrama, but the despicable people up in the balcony made too much noise. That is a perfectly reasonable evocation of the way Edith Wharton people would have talked. So, not an exquisite melodrama, an exquisite melodrama. 
but the despicable, not Daffy, you're despicable, but despicable people up in the balcony. That was a big one. You do not say balcony. That's gross. Balcony made too much noise. And exquisite is not that old a pronunciation. Listen, for example, this is digging in the crates, but you need to hear this. Stephen Sondheim, Broadway composer, anyone can whistle flop show that now people who love musical theater adore, including me. That was one of my first 10 CDs. Cut song from it, yes, called There's Always a Woman. This is, um, who is this? Sally Mays and Kay Ballard doing the cut song There's Always a Woman. I'm playing this part for you only so you listen to the way they say exquisite. Listen. I'm pity. It's always a woman. A genius for trickery that seconds to none. There's nothing as low as a woman. Isn't this fun? Lovely. Charming. Delicious. Stunning. Fabulous. Gorgeous. Exquisite. A knife would be perfect. A gun would be perfect. But see how it's exquisite. Might play it one more time. Charming. Delicious. Stunning. Fabulous. Gorgeous. Exquisite. A knife would be perfect. A gun would be perfect. So they don't say exquisite. They say exquisite. But Sondheim does not mess up scansion. He makes sure that the music's accents parallel the word's accents. The reason that he has them saying exquisite is because people could still say exquisite when he wrote this in the early 1960s, especially people of a certain age. These are quote unquote ladies. And so exquisite. He could do that because this business of the accent, the stress changing, is a major part of how language changes. And that sort of thing would make English sound really odd to us in the past, even if it wasn't anything as dramatic as having to deal with Chaucer. And that's an example of how the stress can move forward. Exquisite becomes exquisite, but then it can move back. I've seen that in my own now becoming lengthy life. I remember when I was rehearsal pianist for a small musical back in 1993. And at one point, the characters had to take out cellular phones. And I just remember the director saying, you guys are playing these really snotty people. These are people who use cellular phones. And so they actually got some props, cellular phones, and of course, they were the size of, of bricks, and they had antennas on them. This is 1993, and everybody had to hold them for one song. And the way you said it was cellular phone, because people didn't have them. Six or seven years later, it was cell phone. So not cellular phone, but cell phone. So there'd been the switch, and then you knocked off the phone, and you just said cell all of a sudden, we're running around in the early 2000s talking about cells. Nobody 20 years before, or even 10 years before, would have known what we were talking about. Or my favorite example of this is what you can hear in the 1930s with the word automobile. It's really a lot of fun. You can hear layers. And so let's listen to... Helen Westley, an actress who was born in 1875 and therefore would have learned to speak in the 1880s and is also playing a fussy, older kind of character. In the 
filmization of Showboat of 1936, which to many people is as significant as Hamlet. So, the filmization of Showboat, directed by James Whale, usually a horror film director, and they put him on a musical. Imagine how deep that came out. 1936, Showboat, and she's having a conversation with her husband. Listen to how she says automobile. Did he buy her any new diamond bracelets or automobiles? She don't say. What does she say? automobile, automobile, that's where it starts. But then you just know that if it starts as automobile, then some people are going to start saying automobile as they become more familiar, as I've talked about on this show. So, for example, here is a movie called Make Way for Tomorrow. I recommend it. It's about what it was like to be very old before Social Security. It holds up. It is as modern as anything that is playing on Netflix right now, despite the fact that it's 1937. And at one point, In a scene late in the movie, there's this sporting kind of fellow trying to sell a car to the old couple. And listen to how he says it. Uh, My name's Ed Weldon. Of course, you don't know me from Adam's father. But you can judge something of my character when I tell you I'm permitted to represent this automobile. Of course, the car sells itself. When I tell you it's considered the mechanical wonder of the age, you'll be surprised. Now, that actor is Del Henderson. He was born in 1877, so he was Helen Wesley's contemporary. But he's trying to play a young person on the make, whereas Helen Wesley was playing a grandmother. Nevertheless, you can hear that these different stages of the word were competing at this time. And if you've got automobile, and then you've got automobile, and then you've got automobile, Well, you know that after a while, just like when you have pizza pie, and then after a while, pizza, you're going to have automobile, automobile, and then just auto. That already existed by the 30s, and you know it if you watch Betty Boop cartoons, because listen to one of her many cute theme songs. This is the cutest one. And listen to this business of an auto horn, which means that there's already a word auto. So not an automobile horn, but an auto horn. Hot cornet can go, sounding hot and blue, but a hot cornet can, like Betty Boop can do. A saxophone can go, playing all night through, but a saxophone can, like Betty Boop can do. This little miss would never miss a chance for vocal tuning, and any time and anywhere you can hear this lady crooning, and all the one can go down the avenue. Now, maybe that doesn't seem dramatic enough, and I I would like it if I could tell you that in 500 years, English is going to need a new name because it's just going to have changed so much. And this business of like the stress changing and Shakespeare, generous, etc., maybe that doesn't seem like enough. But I should say that we have to attend to the difference between written and spoken language. And the truth is that if we're talking about slang, if we're talking about very colloquial and often in-group speech, it does get opaque fast. And so here's an example of how English is changing in ways that we might not know and in ways that will definitely throw people in the not-too-distant future. Let's take a very simple, very plausible sentence. Bro, like they totally dissed his ass. I'm too old to say that, but you can imagine the person saying it. They maybe are into Bernie Sanders. Bro, like they totally dissed his ass. 
If somebody says that, and if the they is the new gender neutral they, where we're talking about somebody who is non-binary and you're not going to refer to them as he or she, but they. And so, bro, like they totally dissed his ass. That is a completely opaque sentence to even a streety person a hundred years ago. So that person is in the street drinking their rye and they're cool and they're doing cool things and listening to ragtime. But bruh, like they totally dissed his ass. They would have no idea what any of that that we're saying now means. So bruh, it starts as brother. And then you hear black men saying bro in the mid 20th century. And then white people pick it up and it becomes bruh. And so this is a certain kind of white guy who is calling other white guys dear or buddy, bruh, bruh. And that comes from a word that used to be brother, as in not a sister. And now it's bruh. And so, bruh, like they totally dissed his ass. (laughs) So what does like mean here? Well, it doesn't mean that you like strawberry ice cream, and it doesn't mean that it's like something that you experienced before. Like they totally dissed his ass is one of many meanings of like, here it's a highlighter. It means they really did like, it's like something more than you might think. Like means many things. Remember my show, many of you will not, that I did with the like lady, as I sometimes jocularly call her, Alexandra Darcy. Like means a lot of stuff, but you know, given that like took over starting only in the late 1970s, that your Gaslight era cool guy would have no idea why you were using like in that way. They would have been used to like being used maybe to indicate approximation, like do it slow like, something like that, but not something like, bruh, like they totally dissed his ass when you're talking about something extreme. Then the they, well, let's face it, many of us 10 years ago would have had no idea how that was being used. Then they totally dissed his ass. Now, the totally doesn't mean they dissed his ass for real or in a total way. If somebody says this in context, what they mean is some people might deny that the ass in question had been dissed. But we, in this group of people speaking to each other, know that, oh, come on, it really happened. It totally happened. That's called a pragmatic usage. I, listening to Bruh, they totally dissed his ass in 1980, when I was 14 or 15, I would have no idea what that meant because that totally had not set in yet. So just 40 years ago, when I'm an adolescent, If somebody had said totally, I would have thought, oh, do you mean completely? I wouldn't have gotten the usage of it that really has settled in, in particular, in the 21st century. So, there's that. Then, dis, for to disrespect. If I'm not mistaken, in 1980, if anybody heard dis used in that way, if it had started, it was very funny. It was major slang. The first time that I heard disused where I thought, oh goodness, that's actually become a word, was in the year 1995 when somebody used it with a straight face, to me actually. And I thought, amidst the actual social import of the exchange, which was unpleasant, that dis is now a word. It's time to put it in the dictionary. But for a while, dis was like, <laughs> like it's disrespect, but you're kind of shortening it and it sounds kind of black American or whatever. So I would, th- in 1980, you know, bro, like they totally dissed his ass. I, as the person that I was in 1980, would have had no idea what it meant. And if somebody told me, I would have thought, well, isn't, you know, that 
interesting in terms of what it might impend for lexicography. In the same time, for example, if dis would have been hilarious in the same way asshole was. I remember guys in the bathroom yucking it up over the word asshole because it only came to mean what it means now, as in jerk, in the 1970s. If you see any recreation of the deep past where people are calling each other assholes in 1930, then however delightful whatever that is, is, it's technically inaccurate. And speaking of asses, frankly, the whole business of, you know, bruh, like they totally dissed his ass, that dissed his ass. I don't know when that particular his ass, that usage of his ass as a pronoun started, but this I know. It was not mainstream English in 1920. Nobody was saying that. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he wouldn't have put it in one of his works, but I'm quite sure that it's not something he would have been familiar with. So, bro, like they totally dissed his ass. Very normal sentence, not cooked. That's not like I was trying to enjoy this exquisite melodrama, but the despicable people up in the balcony made too much noise. Yeah, I made that up. But bruh, like they totally dissed his ass. I made that up, but there's probably somebody saying exactly that right now under my window. And yet, that would be utterly opaque to somebody even, frankly, depending on who they were, 50 years ago. So language change happens. This is The Christmas Show. And so I should have something in there about Christmas because Christmas is what I celebrate. And you know what I'm going to have? I'm going to have one of my very favorite Christmas songs. And as you might guess, it actually doubles as a show tune. This is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. This is Hugh Martin. Remember I did one episode where I had only Hugh Martin songs and Ralph Blaine. They wrote this for the... MGM musical Meet Me in St. Louis. I find those Arthur Freed musicals, frankly, overrated. I know I'm going to get hate mail for that. But Meet Me in St. Louis does have its charms. And I would say that the main one is just when Judy Garland sings this. But I already did a Judy song on the last show. So, you know, actually, whose version of this is my favorite? It's Johnny Mathis. And so let's have Johnny Mathis, who I don't think I've ever had on this show before. If I've had Bobby Short several times, no Johnny Mathis? Johnny Mathis does a kind of an ur version of mid-20th century, Have Yourself a Merry Christmas. And someone who's listening to this really loves the bridge, and so I'm going to hold this through the bridge, and then we will continue as we always do. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light from now our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now Dear to us, 
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. Same one I've had for years. But see, that's the thing. Podcast editors were common by 2016, and so that makes sense. But nobody cares about this police question. Anyway, I am, as always, John McWhorter. Merry little Christmas now.